All right. A couple years ahead of you. We are going to get started. Um, my name is R.B. Brenner. I'm the director of the Journalism School here at the University of Texas. On behalf of the Texas Tribune Festival, it's my pleasure to welcome you to our panel titled, Why Texas Newspapers Matter. Before I introduce our panelists, a couple of programming notes. Uh, this panel is supported by IBC Bank. And though sponsors and donors underwrite this event, they play no role in determining the content, panelists, or line of questioning. Uh, we're going to go for 60 minutes, and I'm going to try to reserve at least 15 minutes for audience questions. And if you want to tweet, the hashtag is TribFest17. Uh, beginning on my far left, we have Mike Wilson, who is the editor of the Dallas Morning News, a position he's held since 2015. Uh, previously, Mike was managing editor of ESPN's 538, working with Nate Silver to lead the data-driven website. Before then, he was managing editor of the Tampa Bay Times, and um, much of his reporting career was spent with the Miami Herald. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, next to Mike is Lauren Gustus. Uh, Lauren is the new executive editor of the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, having started there in June of this year. Previously, she was executive editor of the Fort Collins Coloradan, held editing positions in Reno and Salt Lake City, and was a sports reporter for the Los Angeles Daily News. Next to Lauren is Debbie Hyatt. Debbie is the editor of the Austin American Statesman. She has worked at the paper since 1990, first as an intern and later as a reporter and, and then an editor. She became the newspaper's top editor in November 2011. Uh, for reasons you're going to find out about in just a moment, I'm going to skip to uh, <laughs> Carlos Sanchez. And Carlos is the editor of the McAllen Monitor, a position he has held since 2013. Previously, he was managing editor of the New Orleans Times-Picayune's Baton Rouge Bureau, editor of the Waco Tribune Herald, a state editor for the Austin American Statesman, and a reporter for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, the Washington Post, and the El Paso Herald. Uh, Bob Moore announced this week that he is leaving the El Paso Times, where he's worked for much of his distinguished 34-year career. Bob first came to the Times from the Colorado Springs Gazette in 1986 as Knight City Editor. He later served as Metro Editor, Assistant Managing Editor, Managing Editor, and Executive Editor before being named Executive Editor of the Fort Collins Coloradan in 2006. He returned to the El Paso Times in 2011 as editor. I'm quoting now from an article that ran on Tuesday in his newspaper. Quote, Moore made the decision to step aside to preserve reporting resources after he was asked to make payroll cuts at the Times, which has eliminated several positions in the past year. Unquote. Bob, can you talk more about your decision and uh, the future of the El Paso Times? Sure. Um, the, everyone on this panel uh, has faced uh, tough decisions uh, uh, over the last uh, decade, really, or more, um, uh, as the financial pressures keep increasing and increasing. Uh, we're asked to uh, reduce our newsroom payroll, uh, uh, to find ways to, to operate a little bit differently. Uh, I got another such request uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and it, it was a large number uh, that uh, would uh, greatly affect our newsroom. And so in looking at a series of really bad options, uh, 
uh, I thought the, the best of those bad options was to eliminate my position, which was the highest paid position in the newsroom, uh, as a way of protecting the reporting resources that I think are absolutely vital uh, uh, for that institution's ability to continue covering uh, uh, the El Paso uh, and border communities. Uh, not an easy decision, and I'm, I didn't uh, want to be a martyr or anything like that. Um, uh, it's been the privilege of my lifetime to be the editor of that paper, and I would, you know, would, under any other circumstance, would not want to walk away. Um, but it was uh, um, uh, a terribly difficult decision, uh, but I think ultimately the, the, the right decision. Um, uh, the, the questions going forward then, you know, about uh, uh, El Paso can be replicated in communities across the country, which is basically how do we uh, find a way to sustain um, uh, really critical media organizations. Uh, I, I believe you can't have a healthy community without having a vital independent uh, media. So, so how do we begin to do that? If there's a bright side to anything that's happened in the last week, uh, it's that uh, uh, the El Paso community really realizes what's at stake. Uh, uh, and we've had the beginnings of some conversations along those lines about uh, uh, if we agree that having uh, independent media is important and there's uh, near universal agreement on that, then how do we begin to sustain that? And there's a lot of topics. Yeah. There's a lot of topics we're going to touch on uh, in the next hour that don't involve the business model and sort of the revenue challenges. But I want to ask our other panelists, from, from your perspective, local news on the one hand has never had larger audiences because the internet and mobile allows people to follow coverage without being in the physical community. But the question of making enough money to give you the resources to do what you want to do as editors is very real. Mike, why don't we start with you and we'll go down the line of how you think about that. Sure. So first of all, I just want to take a second to say how much I admire Bob Moore, not just for the selfless decision he made for his newsroom, but for the leadership he's shown in El Paso and in Texas journalism for decades. Every editor here benefits from the leadership that this guy has shown us. Uh, and I just really appreciate that and, and admire the man more than I can say. I, you know, so on the business of journalism, um, uh, it is a, uh, I often say this is a time of existential crisis for uh, journalists, at, especially at regional institutions, right? Uh, there's never been a better time to tell stories or a more important time to cover the news vigorously than the time we're in today. But in a sense, there's never been a, uh, and, and I, I say that partly because of the tools we have to tell stories now. We can reach readers in ways that I couldn't have conceived of when I started my career in 1983. Um, so it's a wonderful time to be a journalist, but also a terribly anxious time for all the reasons Bob just talked about. So every institution has to think of it differently uh, depending on its circumstances. I'm very fortunate in Dallas right now to be at a company with no debt uh, and with some cash in the bank but still existing in the same falling revenue environment that almost all legacy media organizations find themselves in. So we're attacking that in a number of, I think, very creative ways by expanding our portfolio of companies that we own. We're offering a, an array of marketing services unrelated to the newsroom uh, in North Texas that are helping our bottom line. And then on the news side, we're very focused on uh, continuing to serve the print audience as well as we can. We charge a good buck for that paper, and they expect a good paper from us, and we still want to give them one. And we're trying to drive 
a larger and larger number of digital subscribers because 60% uh, of the audience sitting here right now is on their phone, and you know more and more of the audience is reading us on their phone, and we want to reach them there and get their credit card number and get them to help us support uh, really good local journalism. So that's how we're attacking it. Lauren. Yeah, um, I think uh, we're in alignment to some degree in that, you know, much like, can you hear me? No. no. Okay. Where's? Now? Yeah, it's on. I think because of budget cuts, you're not. Yeah. <laughs> We're saving money on technology. It's a great idea. Um, I can be loud. How's that? Yeah. Be loud. Uh, you know, we um, we too are seeing gains in audience growth, and and I think that there's something to that. Um, and unlike uh, the morning news, our neighbors right next door. Um, we do carry significant debt, and so there is some debt pressure with respect to um, our company, our parent company, and how we can uh, how we can essentially relieve that pressure. There we go. Thank you. Um, uh, so I think uh, you know we talk often about a runway, right? And how much runway can we give ourselves to to achieving that debt relief that we need to uh, achieve to essentially. Um, continue to do the journalism we want to do. One of the things we talk a lot about is revenue diversification, much like, like you referenced. So uh, we know that uh, Facebook now will um, engage in revenue plays with respect to um, some of the video work we've done. We're on a new platform that Facebook just launched called Watch with an original video series. And there's a revenue share with Facebook. We can talk about the merits of Facebook all day long, right? And, whether or not we, we enjoy that platform's relationship with the news media. Uh, but right now, there is um, some hope with respect to um, developing revenue sources on Facebook and others, Facebook Live. Uh, you can sponsor a Facebook Live show, have a local advertiser pay you for that sponsorship, right? And you keep that revenue. Facebook does not. You do. So um, there's a line to go down with Facebook and other social media solutions. There's also events. We've talked a lot about how we can do more and better in the event space. Bob, your company has done some of that as well. So um, how might we use that tremendous reach that we have to grow um, audience, not just um, across our product suite, but um, in the intrapersonal space. So events, I would say social growth, and then you know, how do we get the runway that we need to effectively make the revenue transition from print to digital? Debbie, I'll go to you on this, but I'll add one other dimension. Being a reader of your paper, both in print and in digital, uh, I see that you have, uh, with limited resources or, sh or reduced resources, have made decisions to maybe <coughs> get away from certain coverage that I would put in the you know kind of dutiful variety and focus more on <coughs> watchdog, enterprise, investigative reporting. Can you talk about that strategy in particular? Yeah, it, it really is. Uh, you know, the newsroom that I lead right now for the Austin American Statesman is half the size it was um, in the mid 2000s, and uh, and all of those additional products that Lauren was talking about require more resources, more work, a different way of working. And so, um, so you end up spreading yourself very thin unless you make, and when you're very thin, you get pretty shallow, um, unless you make some pretty hard decisions about what you uh, really focus on. And, and we have, um, we've really had to do that through 
you know, the research that we do, trying to understand what readers are really looking for. Uh, fortunately for us, the uh, research really confirmed what we as journalists knew, which was the most important thing we could do for our community was to be a really good watchdog and do the accountability journalism. Um, but that doesn't necessarily just mean, oh, you preserve your investigative team. It could be, you know, you preserve the small community newspaper that um, the Statesman also runs. For example, in, in Round Rock, um, we have a, a smaller community paper, the Round Rock Leader, that a few weeks ago, the uh, editor there started asking some critical questions about a school district appointee um, that the folks that appointed him had not happened to ask. And, uh, and he resigned pretty quickly because there were some you know, potential conflicts and, and uh, some problems in the background, um, issues that you know, would have been raised. And so you have to balance the need to do the big, deep um, enterprise accountability reporting with making sure you have reporters there at the city council meeting in Round Rock and in Bastrop and in Westlake. And uh, I, I can't tell you that that's an easy thing. I mean, it means that there are some things that you, you miss and that you don't do as much as you used to. And Carlos, leading a smaller newsroom where you know, the loss of one position is dramatic, how are things from your perspective? You know, it's an ironic situation in that uh, if you look at the business model of newsrooms in any city and compare it with the business models of any other business, we would be the envy of so many businesses because we have such a loyal audience base. Um, I can't tell you how many people have said, I've been subscribing to the Monitor for 40 years. That's the problem. Uh, those people who are loyal to us are dying every day and we're not replenishing them. So we talk often about the difference between, or the transition from print to digital. For me, the challenge seems to be more from generation to generation. I'm fancying myself after having worked in, in attempting to, to study Facebook that I'm pretty adept at Facebook now, only to have my, my teenage daughter announce to me that Facebook is for old people. <laughs> so it's like you can't win, and it really becomes a new way of, of figuring out how to present the news. And one thing that I see with, with digital is that, or with younger audiences, is the need uh, to respond quickly so the information comes out quickly, uh, respond in a way that is credible, and then ultimately respond in a way that helps them understand what's going on. And those are the challenges that I'm hit with simultaneously. Great. So I'm going to shift now into a series of questions really into our, our broad topic of why Texas newspapers matter. Um, we certainly saw during Hurricane Harvey you know, a very obvious example of why local and regional papers matter is the reporters who know the community and truly are on the ground and doing tough, hard, important work. But there's other ways in which that comes up. And let me start on this end of the table and talk about the border. So you have a lot of, whether it's on uh, national television as well as uh, national papers, either discussing or reporting issues like the wall and immigration and even DACA. And some of those journalists have never even been to the border. Uh, from where you both sit, um, what role, unique role, do newsrooms like yours play in our national and uh, understanding of these very contentious issues? 
Well, I think one of the things is helping to understand the culture of what's going on with the border. I think that as uh, things change with the new administration, there's a lot of concerns. There are a lot of, of there's a lot of misinformation about what is happening and when. Um, so I find that we, for uh, the first time in years, are being relied upon to kind of magnify and explore um, the 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 gossip that may be out there. Um, you know, on one day it's it's there are people who are digging holes next to the border. Is the wall starting to build? And so we need to run out there immediately and let them know those are boreholes for engineers to, to test for things. Um, but that's the kind of information they need, and they need it right now. Because with social media, it, it, the misinformation just fans through very, very quickly like wildfire. And we view our role as, as, uh, as much to diminish that misinformation as to provide relevant uh, information. Ah. So I, th I think what Carlos is talking about is a, a key responsibility where we have to sort of inform our local audiences about, about what the, the truth is. And I, I take it one step further that a, as people who know what's going on on the border intimately, we have an obligation to sort of fight back uh, on a lot of the, the, the misinformation that's out there. And this is not a Trump phenomenon. I want to make that really clear. The, the 2014 Republican primaries in Texas were largely decided uh, on who could beat up on the border the best. Uh, we had, when Rick Perry was governor, uh, uh, he said that uh, car bombs were going off in downtown El Paso. Uh, uh, I hang around uh, people who cuss a little bit too much, so I'm trying to restrain myself on that. <laughs> this is just garbage, right? And so we have our own state leaders who, for political reasons, uh, have decided that they want to diminish the opportunities for a part of their state, those folks who live along the border, in order to advance their own uh, uh, political ambitions. Uh, uh, and then you have national media and national political figures who, who try to, to build off of that. It makes our uh, jobs on the border that much more difficult because we face a lot of challenges there. There's tremendous poverty. Uh, we do have drug trafficking and human trafficking going on that really need to be addressed. But when you get all of this, this garbage out there about the border as a war zone and about Mexican immigrants as rapists and everything, uh, it, it, it does tremendous damage to our community. I'll point out Richard Dayub, the CEO of the Greater El Paso Chamber of Commerce, is in the audience tonight. Ask him sometime how much fun his job has been in the last couple of years when he has to go around to people making business relocation decisions to tell them, actually, El Paso has the lowest crime rate of any city its size. Uh, the crime rate in McAllen is much, much lower than it is in Lubbock, to pick a, an example here. You don't hear Republican politicians talking about a surge of law enforcement into Lubbock to uh, reduce violent crime, but we get that on, on the border. Uh, when the DPS surge started in, in Carlos's area, the most noticeable thing that happened was that people driving along roads in uh, the border region were getting pulled over left and right by uh, DPS. Same thing happened in El Paso. When you ask DPS, what's the data that shows the impact of what you're doing on the border? It's like, uh, state secrets can't talk about that. But 
Then just look at the data on traffic stops and you'll find out what they are doing. So there's a real life consequence to all of this nonsense that it's our job uh, as border journalists, I think, to try to cut through a lot of that and tell the story to our own audience because the people we serve need to know when we have problems in our community and they need to know what the challenges are. But when the, there's a lot of misinformation around there that's going to an external audience, to the best of our ability, we have to fight back on that. Mm -hmm. Mike, I want to talk about the Dallas Morning News coverage of the Confederate statue issue. And one of the things that's interesting is there's the, the role of the reporting, but there's also the role of kind of the news organization as convener of a public square or public conversation. Um, can you talk about what, you, what you've been doing in that regard and why you think it's important? Sure. You know, when we started talking about this, um, the, the panel was called Why Texas Newspapers Matter. And one of the points that I made was that uh, they matter partly because they're not newspapers or they're not just newspapers. Um, the Dallas Morning News is a news organization, principally a website that publishes a daily newspaper as well, uh, but also has the power uh, and influence in its community to convene conversations about important issues. And it does that in many ways. So maybe you heard about the Confederate uh, monuments <laughs> controversy. Um, you know, there, there are many sides to that. Um, the mayor of Dallas uh, made a forceful move to make changes in the displays uh, honoring Confederate war heroes. And the Dallas Morning News, one of our first acts, of course, after reporting on the mayor's newsmaking comments was the editorial board took a stand on the issue. Uh, we invited responses to the editorial board, which we published in print and online. Um, we did uh, social media outreach on this subject and invited reader comments that way. Uh, we uh, broadcast the removal of the Robert E. Lee statue from the park, formerly known as Lee Park, live on Facebook Live. Um, we convened a conversation about First Amendment rights that touched largely on, on this issue. So. Um, as newspapers, our business has changed from you pay us some money, we'll drop something on your doorstep every morning, to we've been here, in my case, for 132 years in Dallas. Uh, we know you, we know the community issues, and we're prepared to bring you the news about those things, hear your views on those, and, uh, and convene conversations about them. So, um, you know, to, to Lauren's point before, uh, those events are, they may become a part of our business. For us, they're not really a revenue uh, generating area yet, but they are a um, uh, they're, they're a, an expression of our commitment to the community and a demonstration of it that I think really makes a difference in our relationship with readers. And Lauren, for a long time, one of the biggest complaints about journalism is we just reveal problems and let other people deal with solving them. Uh, there was a movement in journalism that was sort of solutions journalism that kind of came and went. But it sounds like what you're doing in Fort Worth is looking at sort of a new, maybe a new approach to how to not just reveal problems, but engage with the community. Yeah, one of the things that I think is so important for people to understand, for our readers to understand, and I, I think sometimes there's, a, there's a, a, a separation between us and readers, right? Um, is that we are their neighbors. You know, we live in those communities and we care about those communities just as much as they do. You care about the future of your community just as, as people in Fort Worth who are in my newsroom care about our community. And so um, 
earlier this year, we started reporting on a, a micro neighborhood in Fort Worth called the Las Vegas Trail area. Um, we did a, a, a significant um, bit of work there, spent months in the community. It's um, tremendously high uh, poverty, crime, drugs, un unemployment um, related to poverty. Um, and we told the story of a 12-year-old girl who was kidnapped in this neighborhood, never left a square mile radius, kidnapped, separated from her family, um, put into prostitution, impregnated at 13, became a mom at 14, um, and then um, uh, you know, after we shared her story, and, and I don't want to conflate the two, they were not related, um, she was adopted uh, along with her, her child uh, by another family in Fort Worth. Um, and the story was really powerful, and a lot of folks in, in our community reacted to that story and wanted to know how to help. So um, we put together a, a conversation uh, at a local elementary school. This was not a revenue-generating event. This is just let's have a conversation about how we can get to better. Um, and it was at a, a local elementary school in this neighborhood, and 400 people came. Um, and the mayor came, and the city councilman, and the superintendent of schools and residents of that community. And we had a, a conversation about how we can help the trails get to better. Uh, the city councilman, who was unaware of the problems in the Las Vegas Trail before we started doing our reporting, who is now our number one ambassador, which is great. He says, by the paper, I learned things I didn't know. Um, he has set up a task force that's, um, well, we'll see how it works, but that's meant to uh, solve for some of the issues in the trail. Um, and we intend to stay fully engaged in that community. We've done any number of follow-up stories with respect to um, successes, uh, connections that have been made in that community, and also challenges that still present. Uh, but I think it goes beyond you know, writing that story, thinking about the platform, uh, and then crossing it off the list and moving to the next story on your list. The reporter who's been working in this project is really driven and really connected um, to the community and invested in seeing more um, positive outcomes there. Um, and so as a result, as is our newsroom, and I think that's a really great place for us to be if we look at making a difference, um, which is ideally why we're all here, right? It's why we do what we do. Um, but also, um, on the business side, I think uh, we can demonstrate that we're here to be agents for positive change as well. And I, I think this opens up a broader conversation that I'll throw to all of you, maybe starting with Debbie, which is this connects to sort of the relationship that individual journalists or news organizations really have with their community. And these relationships now exist at a time where public opinion polls show a lot of people find that journalists are biased, that they're not, not trustworthy, and you have a president who labeled journalists the enemy of the people and are fueling that. Um, how does that either filter down to the local level and affect you in meaningful ways, or do people make a distinction between the generic journalism and the people that they know who might cover the school board or that they you know, might uh, see at least see their byline all the time and they live in their community. Debbie, why don't we start and we'll open it up. I, I do think that there, a lot of people see that distinction. I actually sometimes get emails from uh, readers who are distrustful of you know, something that a national reporter did and might say, but 
you know, I like what you're doing about the city hall cover, you know, I like what you're doing over the state or something like that because for us state politics is local being in Austin. Um, so I think for the most part they understand it, but, but where we do see it is um, at the level of some politicians at the local level, there's an erosion of um, the mutual respect that had been there on, you know, you're doing your job, I'm doing my job, you know, we can both do our jobs better if we can have conversations about things and inform the public about these things. Um, I think that as there's a political tone that is being set that is um, disregards, you know, mainstream media um, in the way that, you know, has occurred for, for a while since, you know, long before Trump, um, I do think that at the local level, there are elected officials who start to kind of pick up that tone. And, and I think it hurts the community because um, when we can't get what we need in terms of you know, the information from them, the access to them, to our, um, our readers, then you know, the community suffers. I'll let really anyone jump in if you found it to yeah, be. Yeah, I'd like to jump in and just kind of relive an example in my career. Um, I was at the Washington Post in the late 80s, um, and uh, industry studies show that the newspaper industry itself was at the height of, of revenue earnings, at the height of circulation potential, and uh, arguably at the height of political power during that era. So I was in a major newsroom at a time when the industry was at the apex of, of what it was able to do. And after spending almost a decade there, one of the uh, notions that I walk away with is, God, we were arrogant. <laughs> And I think that arrogance has come back to, to punish us. Technology has allowed the masses to kind of avoid us because we tended to avoid them. And we need to go through kind of a mea culpa period of, of humility and understand where they're coming from. And I think based on that, then we can begin to make strides and regain a relevance that I think we lost. Mm -hmm. I, I want to build okay. off of Debbie's point too that, that uh, where you're seeing this, there's a good strategy to be had, and people have tried it forever, that you know, if you're going to face public criticism, then try to delegitimize your critics. Uh, I think Trump has unfortunately given a roadmap to uh, local figures that, that try to do that too. But I, I do think, by and large, our journalists that are out covering the school board meetings and covering city council meetings, they get a, a much different re response from uh, uh, the, the, uh, our community than you might see at, at, at the national level. And again, you know, it, it, people are real at that point, and it's kind of you know, hard to, to declare somebody the enemy of the state when you're like sitting right across from them at lunch or something like that. Mm -hmm. So I think you know, Lauren's key point has been you know, building connections with the community, and I think that's absolutely vital uh, uh, for being able to push back against uh, these efforts to delegitimize mm -hmm. us. And Mike, you had a situation where your editorial board endorsed Hillary Clinton, I think it was the first time in 75 years that the yeah. Morning News had endorsed a, uh, a Democrat in the presidential election. And even though there's a wall between the, news, the newsroom and the editorial board, I know that certainly you got a lot of community anger directed at you. Did that, does that still affect reporters or who are trying to report the news? I think so. I mean, it's a a very significant decision for the Dallas Morning News to recommend someone other than a Republican. Um, 
and uh, I think it's a decision that is affecting our relationship with the community, especially print readers, uh, more than a year later. Um, that's not to say that uh, I regret it or we regret it uh, for a moment. Um, we think that the uh, editorial was written based on principles that are in line with our institutional views over time. Uh, and so uh, we have no you know, sense of discomfort with the, with the recommendation. Uh, but certainly our audience was, um, you know, was a lot of it was not, not ready for that, not, mm -hmm. you know, not, not happy with it. And, and I think there's just a sort of general um, skepticism about uh, all of us uh, that's uh, fomented by the president and by Fox News since 1996. Um, and, uh, and so we're, we're always dealing with that. And then there's a, an extra layer of that in Dallas because people conflate the institutional view with what, with what daily reporters do. Um, but, you know, as Nixon said, or somebody said, let me say this about that. Um, <laughs> you know, Dave Farenthold this, uh, today said, uh, let's not make the conversation too much about us. You know, let's do our jobs mm -hmm. and let's, mm -hmm. let's get the information and tell the people. I, I agree with that. I also feel, though, that as the leader of a news organization, it's, it's actually incumbent on me to say, um, we're actually not the enemies of the people. We have an important role in democracy. It hurts democracy and the public discourse when the president says that. That's my role as a leader is to say that. I want my reporters to go out and get the story, and that's what they do. And I just have a partial list of here, here's the big point that I want to make here is that the best way we can combat this notion that we're enemies or that there's a problem is by telling stories that matter to the communities we're in. And every one of these editors has a list like this, but let me give you a partial list of things that people in my readership would not know if not for the Dallas Morning News. Houston officials knew in 1997 that some of the neighborhoods that flooded in this, in this last a disaster would be inundated if they, uh, if they didn't take action. They made a report in 1997 and did nothing about it. Homeowners who bought homes in Houston uh, were not warned that their homes would become aquariums uh, in, a, uh, uh, in a situation like this, and we've documented that. The Texas Railroad Commission worked to deny science showing that there's a connection between fracking and earthquakes in North Texas. Uh, CPS, Child Protective Services in Texas, did not routinely check on at-risk children in the state care, and children got hurt and died because of it. Uh, Dallas did not uh, watch over its uh, housing program sufficiently, and as a result, uh, someone was able to buy uh, purchase property meant for building uh, homes for new home buyers, and, and he was, uh, this person was taking money that he'd gotten illicitly and building homes for his family. Uh, so uh, this is just a, a short list of things, uh, but this is, this is why Texas newspapers matter, because we're in these communities and telling readers stuff that certain people or the government does not want them to know. Mm -hmm. Staying on that theme, I'm going to go to Lauren and Debbie on this. So Lauren, in Colorado, you helped lead efforts to modernize that state's open records law. Debbie, you are on the board of directors of the Freedom of Information Foundation of Texas. Um, my read on it is Texas is not in a very good place right now in terms of how the government is approaching access to open records. Can you both talk about, uh, Debbie, maybe what you know about Texas right now, sure. what we should be focusing on, and Lauren, um, what you did in Colorado and, and why it's 
and, and, and what difference it made. So Debbie, why don't we start with you? Yeah, so the, uh, the last session was not a good session for government transparency. Um, it was not because of what they did as much as what they didn't do. Um, there had been some court rulings that had, uh, could, you know, continue to have a, con a tremendous impact on how journalists and, you know, everyday people um, look into the way government is spending money. Um, one of those, it's called the Boeing case uh, in particular, makes it difficult for um, people to look at third-party contract, the details of third-party contracts if, um, with a government entity if the, if the company is saying that there is proprietary material within. And um, the hope and the expectation was that the legislature would take care of that issue because really that court ruling, the way that um, the court interpreted that issue uh, was a big change from previous practice. And um, what happened was that the, uh, the committee chair for um, government transparency killed that bill at every opportunity in the House, and that was uh, Gary Elkins. And so, you know, there are, there are a lot of issues that uh, remain. I, I think, you know, Carlos has the best example <laughs> of just how ridiculous that uh, interpretation from the Supreme Court is. Yeah. Just very quickly, um, a couple of years ago in McAllen, we had a Christmas parade that began with a concert, and we brought in Enrique Iglesias. And the city paid him money, signed a contract, and they used the Boeing exception to deny the, uh, the public the knowledge of how much Enrique Iglesias was paid, because that's proprietary information. So I mean, when we invite him to our parade, we... <laughs> I mean, it, it is, uh, you know, that, that's kind of a funny example, but there are serious examples about um, huge amounts of money. Uh, you know, we did some uh, state contracting stories a few years ago that, uh, about some technology contracts that... Um, because we had access to them, we were able to explain a lot about what was and wasn't happening uh, that we would have a harder time doing now. And uh, that's something that I'm hopeful that everyone in this room that cares about you know, tra transparency will keep in mind you know, when you talk to legislators. Uh, that's something that has to get fixed. Good yeah. Lord. Well, I'm so glad you didn't ask me about what's going on in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of a learning curve there, but... Um, Lots of good people yeah. to learn from. Uh, in, uh, in Colorado, a couple of years ago, we set out to do a story that many newsrooms across the country have probably done before, um, and one that we should do with some degree of consistency or regularity. We wanted to see if males and females at the local university were being paid uh, the same. We also wanted to see if admin um, and faculty and staff were being paid um, in, in ways that were essentially fair. Uh, so we requested the entire uh, database, if you will, of salary information for employees at Colorado State University. And uh, CSU came back to us and said, oh yeah, sure, you can see that. We publish it once a year. It's in a book. It's in the Morgan Library. You can go check the book out. And we said, okay, we'll go over to the library and check it out. And, uh, and we, it was actually checked out. We couldn't get the book. Someone else had the book, okay? So anyhow, we, we went, took us a couple weeks. We finally got our hands on it. And it was uh, just 153 pages of an Excel document printed out. So it had clearly come from a digital source. 
Um, and in an effort to expedite our reporting process, we went back to CSU and said, hey, would you mind just sharing that with us via Excel instead of the printout that's in the library? And they said, no. Uh, they said, we've met the letter of the law. You don't, um, you don't have any right to this as an electronically um, uh, generated file or, or piece of data. So um, we wrote about it. We let people know that, hey, we tried to get this data, and guess what? We couldn't, which is pulling back the curtain, which is what you're talking about in terms of letting people in, letting people know what our process is and what we do. Um, and a local, um, a local elected official, a member of the state senate in Colorado, saw the, the story and called us up and said, hey, I think this is wrong. I also happen to be a professor at CSU, and I think this is wrong. Uh, and, um, and I want to work with you on it. And so we floated a bill. First time it failed. It was uh, very political. Um, but we floated it again after a year uh, long um, uh, stint in a committee uh, that involved the Secretary of State's office, um, elected officials from across the state, open records advocates, those who weren't so friendly to open records. Uh, we, but we, at the end of the day, we came up with, uh, with a piece of legislation that was um, doable, and, uh, and it made it out of the House and Senate and was signed into law in uh, May of this year. So I think it's really hard to navigate um, those open records issues that come with so much more baggage than just the issue in and of itself. Um, and if you can find someone sympathetic to open records in your community, you might have a shot at uh, making some change. We never thought that we would change law, and, and we so, did. So we have time for one more from from us, and then I'll open it up to the audience. So I think I'm going to steal from Mike's idea and ask each of you, without maybe as extensive a list, but to at least cite one, one story or one series that you hold up as why your newspaper mattered in your community. And we'll start with Carlos and, and go down and end with Lauren. Well, thank you. I think over the last two to four years in particular, when there was a surge of immigrants coming from Central America, um, we took great strides. Is that mine? Uh, somebody. Somebody <laughs> left the phone. Um, took great strides to explain. I mean, there, there's been this, this lifelong call for um, immigration reform, um, but that's to the extent of what, what most politicians do, is say, you know, our system is broken, we need to reform it. Um, what we did is explain the immigration process, explain the problems that uh, exist with immigration issues, and have written extensively about what is broken now and what needs to be reformed and how to go about reforming it. Great, Bob. Uh, the, my career example that I'm most proud of, and it shows the power of, of why uh, uh, Texas newspapers really matter. Uh, we had uh, uh, a school district in, in El Paso, our largest district, that uh, uh, was monkeying with federal accountability data. Um, basically, uh, they were faced with a choice uh, when they had low-performing schools, they could try to educate the kids and give them a future, or they could monkey with the data and to hell with the kids. Uh, and there was a lot of credible evidence that came forward on this. The uh, Texas Education Agency looked at it and said, I had nothing to see here. Uh, uh, the U.S. Department of Education came in uh, and said, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, it took a reporter at the El Paso Times who went to that school district, graduated from that school district, uh, who saw those kids in herself uh, to say, 
somebody needs to take a look at it. And she spent two years uh, digging into it uh, and documented what's probably the most, I, I think, horrific uh, academic cheating scheme in the, in the history of the country uh, uh, because they just basically flushed the lives of kids down uh, so that they could meet these accountability standards and not coincidentally get bonuses for themselves. Um, that's the power that we play. And so superintendent went to prison, school board got removed from office, uh, three other administrators uh, have pleaded guilty. Um, uh, the community was made aware of the problem, started to pay a bit more attention to uh, uh, our, our school systems, uh, have different people, different kinds of people running for, for school boards now. Um, that's the power of, of good journalism and it's the power of really good people stepping into that role and not being afraid to say, I know everybody else says there's nothing to see here, but we know there is, and we're going to show you what's there, and we're going to help the community fix the problem. Debbie. You know, we, like I said, state issues, policy issues feel local to us because of where we are. We feel like we have an opportunity to uh, really um, create change with our coverage in Austin of, of statewide policy issues. And a few years ago, we did, um, you know, we looked at uh, some CPS records that uh, basically the state had set up a law saying CPS needed to start keeping a database that would allow them to see patterns and prevent more deaths. And um, they had never actually done anything with that database. So we figured. We could do that. Um, took a long time to go through the database, but uh, we were able to point out a lot of, you know, really preventable patterns that were there, and um, we're able to get some legislation that was passed uh, this session after that that basically said, no, really, CPS, you have to use this database, and here are the ways that you need to use it. And um, there's been a lot of good reporting on child protective services issues. Uh, since then, but I feel like you know that was a piece that uh, got the whole state paying attention again to this being a really critical problem in all of our communities. Lauren, no, you're new, but you can also just talk about the, your your paper, even uh, things that preceded you. Yeah, sure. Um, I I know. Um, I think we should answer that call. <laughs> I bet I bet she's calling to find her phone. <laughs> I think it's a what does Vox have to say? I know the Star Telegram's done a lot of work in the schools, um, and, I, and I'm really proud of that. And I think that that's one mm -hmm. of um, the most important places we can spend our time and energy because um, the quality of our K through 12 education is related to absolutely everything else in our communities, right? From economic development to um, contributions uh, beyond uh, that K through 12 level. We've looked at the quality of drinking waters. So I was looking at photos, old photos yesterday, or yesterday, it was yesterday, Friday, yeah, <laughs> of um, all of these drinking fountains that, that uh, they had to pull out of schools after the Star Telegram and reported that the, the quality of the fountains was bad because the pipes were bad and so on and so forth. 
kids were drinking dirty water, and that was relatively recent, just a couple of years ago. Um, and I'll go back to to that Las Vegas Trails neighborhood, and and just denote that you know after we dived in there um, and recognized, and we talked about it in the forum, a need for volunteers. There are um, crossing guards now. There are after school reading tutors um, in these elementary schools that are coming from all over the community to help in Fort Worth. Um, uh, again, I, I am a short timer, but I am well aware of our paper's history uh, with respect to its community and its state. Eamon Carter uh, founded our paper years and years ago, um, and, and one of my favorite quotes from him um, is, uh, you can uh, choose to um, live uh, off of your community or to live with your community. And um, I think I, I, I know where I would rather be, and I think it's a clear path to, to success for newspapers. So we have about a uh, little more than 10 minutes for your questions. There's a standing mic there. Is there a handheld, you know? Just a standing, Just a standing mic. Great. Um, hi, I'm David Flash, and I'm a student here at uh, UT. I came up in the business side, and now I'm learning a little bit more about the uh, content side. I actually uh, worked probably uh, where, where you worked, Debbie, at the Statesman. I used to love hanging out on the second floor. Y'all were way cooler than the third floor <laughs> advertising people. And, um, we still are. And, and, and when I was there was, was right around, I think um, one of y'all had mentioned that the size of, I think you had mentioned the size of your staff was, it was like 06. It was twice the size it is now, is that correct? Yeah. Um, and my question, what I'm trying to wrap my head around as a professional, and I'd like your comments, what do you think the people on the third floor can do or could have done that they're not doing to make it where the people, where, where we can support that room full of journalists that, you know, it's still a big room even at half the size, but we need those people in the city council meetings. We need that coverage to be deep. And counter to that question, where did those people, or I guess the other part of that question, where did those people go? Where did that other half go? Are, are they still sitting in council meetings somehow? Who's funding them if they, you know, we need them there, I guess. And that's. So um, I know that the folks on the third floor are working really hard to try to figure out the business model. I don't think that they're um, sitting back. They're no happier about what's happening to our newsrooms than we are. Um, and. I think that you know they're doing the things that both uh, Mike and Lauren mentioned, really trying to figure out how to diversify different um, revenue sources. Um, and I think that's what they have to do. I mean, they have to continue to be more innovative about that. Um, at the same time, just like the newsrooms, we have to be more innovative about how we're telling stories and reaching people at the same time that we're paying attention to the core audience. And that's what the folks on the third floor need to be doing. Um, where did those folks go? I mean, some of them, uh, a lot of them went to a different part of the business, which is frankly, you know, public information offices. Um, at the time when newsrooms have gotten smaller, uh, government entities and, um, and businesses have explosively increased the sizes of their public information offices. On the one hand, when you have somebody from a newsroom that goes into one of those roles, you think that they have some uh, good solid footing in journalism and journalistic ethics, and that's helpful. 
On the other hand, um, there is a movement out there to try to, uh, you know, conflate the two, to say that um, the stories that are being written out of, um, you know, just an example, Dell's marketing department are just like the stories that are written by uh, the Austin American Statesman's 512 tech team. And technology has made that a lot easier. And so it's, it's a little bit scary to have some of those folks on the other side of the wall now. Great. Um, so to get as many of these questions in, I'm going to ask folks to a, keep the questions as succinct as possible. And I'll probably just call on one panelist to answer each one. Sure. Um, Errol Lewis, I'm in television now, but spent about six years on the editorial board of the New York Daily News, which you may have heard sold for a dollar last <laughs> week. Uh, and uh, without getting into and the last- He's, he's talking about the whole newspaper company, not like the Tuesday edition. <laughs> yeah. how, much does, how much does a copy of the New York Daily News cost? <laughs> Yeah, um, it, the, the last print edition of the Village Voice rolled off the presses last week, and that was a free um, newspaper. Anyway, um, I wanted to know, to the extent that the Texas Tribune makes all of its content available, how helpful have you found it? And if you could put a percentage on it, what percentage of your story flow or uh, whatever me other metrics you use is coming from the Texas Tribune? Why don't we, Bob, do you want to take that sure. one? Uh, we've had a great partnership with the Tribune since, since it started. Uh, it fills, a, I think, a unique niche for El Paso because we're so isolated from the rest of the state. We do have uh, uh, and continue to maintain a Capitol Bureau in, in Texas, and I'm proud of that. But there's a huge disconnect between El Paso and, and, the, and the rest of the state. So having the resources of the Tribune available uh, uh, has been a, a big help to us. That counts for maybe about 5% or so of the, the total content that we push out. The other part of that partnership is it does give our journalists access to an audience that the Tribune brings statewide that we wouldn't reach otherwise. Um, hi, I'm Katrina Scheidlower. Um, I'm from El Paso here on behalf of We Fill in the Blank, which is an organization based out of Coronado High School. Um, and my question is for Mr. Bob Moore. Uh, you talked about earlier in the conversation how the purpose of newspapers is to kind of fight back against a lot of misinformation put out especially by social media. Um, so in today's increasing world of technology, I wanted to know how you propose that we do fight back against that misinformation. Uh, anybody else want to tackle that one? Uh, uh, <laughs> that, 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 that's that's a, a, a great question. Uh, you know, so we've got, yeah, uh, Debbie's mentioning PolitiFact, and there's a lot of great fact-checking organizations out there. Uh, that, that really uh, do a wonderful job. I think each of our organizations spend a lot of time with fact-checking and, and debunking. But he, here's the really big challenge, uh, is that the ultimate answer really lies with the audience as much as it does with, with the content generators. And I think, and, and uh, there are ed educators in the room, my, my wife is here as a professor at UTEP. I think educators have a big role in, uh, in, in kind of teaching some, some media literacy to, to begin to uh, understand how, how do we differentiate between good information uh, and, and bad information. Uh, so I think great educators, and I want to cite Gary Berglund, who's sitting in the back, who's your teacher yes. at Coronado High School. Um, uh, I think having more people like Mr. Berglund uh, and more student groups like yourself uh, uh, is uh, probably the best answer that I could give. Can I just throw yeah. in, um, don't hit the share button. Mm -hmm. It can be as simple as that. I think we're going to have time for two more, but there'll be a little time for you to come up and talk to panelists when we end. I'm a founding supporter of the, the Texas Tribune and uh, 
practically a founding subscriber to the Austin American Statesman. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And, and I'm, I'm wondering whether the nonprofit model exemplified by the Tribune offers any sort of a way forward for the profit uh, parts of journalism. Uh, you know, I, I think they've come up with, they have really executed very well on that model. Um, not all nonprofit journalists, uh, journalism models have worked. Um, I think that if you flooded the market um, per se with uh, those sort of nonprofit requests, it would be harder. I mean, if every newspaper in Texas went to that model, there wouldn't be enough money in people's pockets, you know, in the same way. Um, but I, I think it's something that the folks at the highest levels of the uh, companies need to be thinking about is how do we, how do we um, give enough value so that people understand that this is a, you know, a public-private partnership, that the local newspaper really is a public-private partnership. It's not just about making profit. It is about uh, a huge community mission. Hi, I'm Audrey. I'm a student at the School of Journalism here, and my question is directed to Mr. Sanchez. When journalists are trying to heal the distrust or the wound between the American people and, you know, uh, our newspapers, how far uh, do we entertain? Where do we draw the line at the allegations we entertain when, um, you know, publications like Breitbart make allegations that George Soros is behind like the Wall Street Journal when there's just these outlandish, very politically fueled allegations that don't have any truth to them. Where, where do we say, no, this is not fact and we are not going to entertain this. This is not in the business of truth and this is not what we stand for. Oh, I think that uh, what you need to do is, is uh, just stand up in principle and um, frequently, there is a lot of public pressure. Um, I, I can't tell you how often I get emails about why are you hiding this bit of information and why are you hiding that bit of information. A lot of the allegations made about the mainstream me media are allegations that are based in ignorance of how the mainstream media operates. And I think one way to help uh, alleviate or mitigate some of those uh, is to give people a better understanding of what, for example, the opinion page does versus the news pages. Um, I think that you have seen a collective kind of jarring of the lines as it relates to cable TV, for example. So most of those people who label themselves as commentators are viewed as journalists by, by the public. Um, we cannot allow those lines to be blurred, and so we need to kind of fight back by, by enlightening people how we operate. So I'm, I'm afraid we're at time. I just want to conclude by saying I've worked in a lot of different states around the country, and I think we in Texas are very fortunate, and you're seeing this on this panel, that Texas has excellent newspapers uh, and, and one of the best states I've seen in the country for local and regional journalism. So please join me in thanking these editors. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.